Thanks for tuning in to Power Athlete Radio. So this show has me really jazzed. PhD student Rachel Larson is here to discuss internal and external focus and training. If you're doing any kind of performance training, this applies to you. How you think about moving a load or achieving a lift can depend on your focus, meaning if you are thinking about how your muscles should be contracting and coordinating and working together, you've got an internal focus. If you're thinking about a metaphor or a performance metaphor for the task you're performing, like in a bench press, you might be thinking about shoving away an opponent. You are thinking externally. The exciting thing is that there is some very compelling research pointing to one being more advantageous than the other. Larson is on the cutting edge of this research, and she is here to share it with us. This is episode 307. Power Athlete Nation! It's that time again for another episode of the Premier Podcast in Strength and Conditioning. Ing. Ing. I didn't get an ing out of that guy. Ing. There it is. Ing, 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 ing. This is Luke, co-host of Power Athlete Radio. Tex, co-host, Power Athlete. I'd like to introduce to our featured guest today, John Wilborn. <laughs> It never gets old for me. So <laughs> oh, <just> obviously not. <laughs> uh, it's only been a few hundred episodes, and you still have every I time. I just can't wait. I mean, it's kind of like Texas Quaff. It mm-hmm. just never gets old. That's right. Oh, baby. Oh, baby. He oh, babies his own quaff. I don't even know if that's called legal. Bounce, guys. Ladies. Uh, the last time I saw a quaff like that, it was in Flock of Seagulls. And those of you guys listening right now, go to the Google and mm-hmm. enter Flock of Seagulls hair, and you'll see what Texas hair looks like. If you don't enter hair, you're just going to get a big picture of a bunch of seagulls. So it'll be a wasted Google search. What, what would be a Flock <laughs> of Seagulls' one. Uh, number one song, like most memorable song? Um, if, when you say it, I'll know it, but I can't call, recall it off the top Are of they head. Take On Me? No. no that's AHA. Isn't it Ran? Like, I ran, ran so Oh, is that what it is? Away. I know the song. Yeah. And I ran. Ladies and gentlemen, speak of running. No, so this, far away. No, wait. <laughs> this episode, Tex went on a date yesterday. Oh, <laughs> run far away. No, we're oh, talking about the speed cycle. No, no, Tex. For feel first, strong. No. First and foremost, this we're, episode of Power Athlete Radio is brought to you by Power Athlete Radio. Ladies and gentlemen, if you enjoy this podcast, go to your neighbor's, ho- your neighbor's house <laughs> next door right now. Knock on their door. We'll wait for you. Knock on their door and tell them to... Subscribe. Spread the word. We've got an awesome episode today. And if you're digging what we do, leave us leave us a review on iTunes. Go do it. We have like 300 reviews right now, right? Ish? Um, yeah. Ratings, reviews. What's the difference? Or 300 ratings, about 100 reviews. We want more. Go do it. If you're like, man, if you are that person, that guy or that gal who's like, I haven't done that, well, get your shit together. Go punch your neighbor in the face and give us a review <laughs> and then tell them to listen to this podcast. I think I it's wrong? a great idea. If you're on a bus, there's, if you're in a car. There's nothing that could go wrong with this idea. It's, an, it's a no-brainer. And we must tell you, we can see your address when you review it. So if you give us anything less than five stars, John Wellboard's going to come over to your house and then hit you with a sack of marbles. Yeah, so enter your ne- I thought neighbor's address. a sack address. of potatoes. I thought it was a sack of oranges. but I Oh, a sack marbles. of oranges. That's right. <laughs> I, also, I also used to tell people... Uh, at the seminar, we're going to come hit you with a, like a wet trout. <laughs> I don't know where that fucking came from. Uh, a wet trout, like a frozen trout? No, no a like one. a fresh one. Oh, like a, a freshly fresh caught trout. Whack! <laughs> <laughs> Actually, that might kind of 
I don't know if it'll feel good or hurt or. Well, it'll sting, but it won't leave a mark, and that's what's important. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard. Um, what were we talking about? Uh, uh, the premier podcast of strength and conditioning. Ing. 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 Uh, yeah, so give us a review. Let us know what you like. Uh, let us know what you don't like. We just want to continue to spread the word, get those ratings up, continue to get more listeners, and continue to impact more loyal followers. We've gotten emails from a lot of folks who are very appreciative for the guests and the time we put into this. I mean, um, and we're happy to hear that type of stuff. So don't don't hesitate. Yeah, I get an email at least once a week from Luke's mom telling her how you know she's really excited to listen to this podcast. And, mm-hmm. and she's know, like, can you please quiet that Luke guy down? <laughs> Oh, She's like, lady. you need to be nicer to Tex. You're just, mm-hmm. you guys are just really rough on him. Like when Ward was rough on the beaver. But here's the thing. Like, it's like, we're not even being mean. We're just telling Tex the truth. You know, boot height, five, seven, real height, five, five. <laughs> Dude, these are science. We're using scientific instruments you know, to measure. The, like the best was when our guest was like, oh, I'm vertically challenged. We're like, I'll tell you. She's like, ah, five, 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 six. And Texas eyes get real big. He's like, that's not vertically challenged. That's really tall. <laughs> that's kind of a that's kind of a tall girl. This is not true, Rachel. Don't believe this. <laughs> <laughs> Anywho, uh, yeah. So that's our official sponsorship. And what's and what's even best about this uh, this particular episode is we are on the. Would we be on the precipice? Is that the right term, John? We're on the precipice of two cycles where this information is totally relevant. I would have gone with the cusp. We're on the cusp of two cycles, of a field strong cycle and a Jack Street cycle. That where this information would be totally relevant because we're talking about uh, the internal and external approaches or perspectives to cueing and just your focus on yeah. when you're lifting weights. With uh, Rachel Larson today, who's out of ASU and is doing all sorts of jiggy research on really like... Well, I, as she was talking, I, th- I figure what we should do is record uh, a series of cues that people can play while they're lifting weights with, like, just me screaming, speed! Well, what if it was just clapping and it was good job? It was like, great job, like keep going. Like the coach from the Cowboys? Who, great Tom job. Landry? Keep going. No, Garrett, it's a big joke. They call him the clapper. Ah, I wouldn't get it. Yeah. Anyway, but Field Strong, we're about to hit our speed cycle. Right? Yes. And so, John, what's going on with speed? Um, speed is about moving fast. So uh, we have a ton of dynamic movement in terms of sprinting, velocity, and we're also working on our velocity and how it translates into your ability to generate force and go fast. At the end of the day, uh, it's next to impossible to be a field sport, field strong athlete and not move fast in terms of sprinting the and whole thing. As much as I can, like... I wish I could make you guys faster and all the jiggy stuff we do with trunk activation and dynamic work and med ball. All of that is prefacing you and preparing you to fucking sprint and move as fast as you can. And without that stimulus, we can't continue to drive strength and power and speed. Uh, people that go out and run and, fa- and, and sprint and move as fast as they can will be stronger than those that don't. And I wish I knew a way on Field Strong so that you guys could just be jiggy and do a bunch of cool shit and not go out and sprint your asses off. But right. unfortunately, it's coming. Mm-hmm. And then on Jack Street, you have intensity wrapping up, John, and we're getting into four cycles. What's going on with that? Uh, I called the four cycles um, because they were big within compensatory acceleration. And I named them the force because I was looking at how to drive maximal force. People talk about strength, hypertrophy, and really what I'm focused on is force and power. And uh, we've periodized uh, to this point when we're going to see some 
uh, lower rep ranges. We're going to see some more volume in the sets, and I'm going to really focus on compensatory acceleration being as dynamic as possible. So I want you to learn to drive force. Not only be strong, but be forceful and powerful. So if you're not fucking following these programs, people, and some of that got you all jazzed up, I think it's time, and especially after you hear Rachel Larson. You're gonna, it's just going to change your perspective on training and coaching, like I promise it. Is, and it's pretty, again, insightful going into what we used to talk about in terms of our hierarchy of cueing, right? Mm-hmm. So biomechanical, uh, performance perspective, and then getting in the way. And even if, you, even if you think about it, the tactical, um, depending on how you applied it, that even could be internal and external. Mm-hmm. You know, versus like become an obstacle versus apply a tactical feedback mechanism. So really, really jiggy shit, man. So I'm excited. You should be excited too, Power Athlete Nation. It's going down. Another episode of the Premier Podcast in strength and conditioning. Ing. Ing. About Game of Thrones? Never heard of it. That's not true. You told me about Game of Thrones. Okay. <laughs> you know what I'm thinking about right now. What? That's seasons one through five in the office for eight weeks straight. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, so, yeah, Luke's like, hey, you should download some, um, I don't know, some, like, uh, shows onto your phone so you can watch them on, uh, on like, plane flights. And I was like, oh, cool. What should I get? And he's like, oh, I heard this Game of Thrones thing's good. So I downloaded the first season, and I watched it on the airplane. And then I came back and downloaded all the seasons. And I would just yeah. turn my computer. And he's like, are you working or just watching Game of Thrones? I'm like, of course I'm over here working. Yeah, binge watching. I didn't, like I didn't this, get anything done for like four oh weeks. <laughs> like, and for I'm like watching four, squats. <laughs> for like four weeks, it's all I did. And I got up to speed and like, thank God I did. Because, yeah, mm-hmm. it's good. Yeah, it's few, understandable. <laughs> we're, a few, we're a few weeks away from the final season, right? Dude, you know, some of the episodes are like 80 and 90 minutes. I can't wait. Like nothing, nothing better than just like a three-hour movie or a 90-minute TV episode. It's my style. I'm just thinking everybody's going to die. What if it's it's like lost? No, like... And it's just a dream. No, I think what's going to happen is uh, all the characters, everything, everybody good is just going to die, and then they're just going to be like, F you, everybody's dead. White walkers? Yeah, just going to go on. We're going to be like, oh. And then they're going to be like, oh, it's the the analogy for life that the white walkers are people on Instagram, and they're taking over the world, and now it's over. Rachel, what say you? Do you even watch the show? What's that? Do you watch Game of Thrones? You have a theory? Yes, I do. What's your theory? Uh, I don't know. Now I'm starting to think everybody's going to die. You kind of have me convinced. <laughs> but like they I mean, kill because off. Because usually you're watching and you're like, what? You know, so. They kill off everybody. I remember what was like the first <laughs> yeah. season. They like cut Ned's head oh, off. Oh, spoiler alert. Maybe somebody's going to watch it. They haven't seen it. You so here's, a, here's a big thing with like Luke and those guys. <laughs> they go see a movie and like, I don't want to spoil it. Uh, I figure if you hadn't gone to see it by the time I've seen it, then you deserve to get spoiled. Cause, uh, spoil it. Yeah, because I never see anything. I have three kids and it just makes it impossible to go see that stuff. Well, sorry, Power Athlete Nation. That's why whenever John's like, hey, I went and saw a movie this weekend, Tex and I just bolt. Run. We're like, get the fuck out of here. <laughs> like, what if it's a movie we want to see? John's going to tell us everything. I, I, yeah, I have no problem. And I have no problem if they tell me everything because I'm still going to see it because I'm going to forget it in 10 minutes anyway. Well, that's why we tell you the wrong thing anyways. <laughs> right? Eh. Like Fast and Furious, Tokyo Drift, not actually about drifting. It's a sailing movie. <laughs> 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 like, they're those are movies. Those are documentaries. Uh, all right, Rachel, hang on. Thank you for joining Power Athlete Radio. Believe it or not, this is actually a strength and conditioning ing, ing, ing. podcast. Um, so we'll get into that. But before we do, Rachel, we'll stop yapping. Why don't you give us a little background? Give our listeners a background on who you are, what you do, and how you got to do and what you're doing. 
All right. Um, well, my interest grew kind of at a young age for this field. Um, I played multiple sports. Um, at one point, fell in love with volleyball. And so, unfortunately, I'm a little vertically challenged. So I had to start studying performance at a younger age to try and improve my uh, vertical. Um, so in high school, I just remember reading, you know, every magazine article, obviously I didn't know about research studies and things like that. Um, but what's, you know, what are these volleyball workouts, you know, what's Gabrielle Reese doing, you know, all these different things. Um, and then just trying them out myself to figure out what worked. And so when I went to graduate, uh, high school and, um, I was being recruited for volleyball, but I'd heard about exercise science. And so I said, that's the degree I want to go to. Um, and then went on, got my bachelor's in exercise science, um, biomechanics track. Uh, further went on to get my master's in human movement and sports conditioning. Started being a strength coach. Um, got my first teaching job at Chandler Gilbert Community College uh, with Brent Alvar. Uh, started training some of the teams there. Uh, I was working with uh, volleyball, basketball, soccer, um, and then eventually started training the Firefighter Academy. So um, had both the practical experience and then I was also on the academic side. And so I really enjoyed being in that uh, position. Um, went on, started teaching at Grand Canyon University and training their rugby team as well. Um, and then now I'm full-time at ASU. Um, here we're not allowed to necessarily teach and coach at the same time, but we can do it outside of ASU. And so I still work, uh, in the rugby community as a strength coach. I don't ever want to let go of being on both sides, uh, just because there's a lot of discovery that comes with coaching that I can come over here and look at academically or test and, um, study and then go back and try to apply. So, um, really enjoy where I'm at now and what I'm doing and hope to continue to be in this position for a while. Nice. So are you men and women's rugby or what's up men's rugby? Men. Yep. Nice. Man, yes. just a sport I never got into because my buddy got his face smashed up pretty good in, uh, our freshman year of college. I'm like, man, I don't know if I want to fucking Go that, probably would have helped, that probably would have helped your face. What the <laughs> fuck is that supposed to mean, well Bard? So, Rachel, you currently have a couple studies going on that you shared. So talk to us about your research and any adjustments that you've made from uh, a publication to the next and what you really hope to accomplish with diving into this particular subject. Well, this subject I've really been diving into for about seven, eight years now. Um, and so I would be really excited to have the training study completed so I can see what the answer is to some of my questions. Um, it was, I, during my master's program, um, I started reading some research by Gabrielle Wolf, um, and some stuff on motor skill, motor learning. And I got an opportunity to see her present after I had graduated, I think it was back in maybe 2010. So I was an Arizona State board member for NSCA. And listening to her present, I was sitting next to Brent Alivar. And 
she had mentioned how there was this extra muscle activity during an internal focus in all of her studies. And I thought, okay, wait, you just said there's extra muscle activity. What's going on here, right? We're seeing some neuromuscular effects from what she was studying. And so I leaned over Grant and I'm like, hey, do you think that could have any implications on improving strength or, you know, hypertrophy, anything like that? And he's like, I don't know, study it. Um, and so I actually applied to go on and get my PhD under Brent um, at Rocky Mountain University and been studying this pretty much the whole time, went in with the intent to have this as my dissertation. Um, so basically the <clears throat> overarching theme that I'm looking at um, is whether or not an internal or external focus of attention is better for muscular strength adaptations. Um, we published a study last year showing that there was some benefit to an internal focus um, for hypertrophy, but all the other research has shown you should always think externally. Um, I should probably take a step back and explain what those two are. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, yeah, so an, an internal focus, basically, if I was lifting or doing a bicep curl, I would be thinking about flexing the muscle. Uh, versus an external focus, I would be thinking about lifting the weight. So something outside of the body, you know, some type of end result of the movement. Um, and, you know, over 25 years of research has shown when you think outside of the body, um, so maybe you're pushing off of the ground whenever you jump or anything like that, then you're going to perform better. Or if I'm shooting a basketball and I'm thinking about the trajectory of the ball or the basket, then I'm going to perform better. Um, and then if you start to think internal, there's some different, you know, neuromuscular things that are going on that cause, um, a constraint in our movement patterns. And so we're less efficient and then we therefore perform worse on a task. Um, <clears throat> so for example, uh, what was like a study was done on dart throwing and the internal focus group um, so they were focusing on, you know, their, their hand releasing the dart versus the trajectory of the dart, which was the external focus. And they saw that there was an increase in muscle activity in the agonist and antagonistic muscle when someone thought internally. Um, and so they figured out that that's actually hampering our movements, right? So what's supposed to happen is... <laughs> And when I'm doing a bicep curl, my bicep's supposed to contract and my triceps should relax. Well, we're not getting that reciprocal inhibition when we think about the bicep, right? Or we refer to anything with the body. So now that's going to not only hamper our movements, but make them a lot more stiff um, in nature. So it limits our degrees of freedom um, and, again, hampers our fine motor control. Um, they've also found that when athletes are in states of anxiety or nervous that they tend to internalize things and start to think about their movement patterns. And that's what causes choking in sport. Um, <clears throat> but if we think external, so the person thinking about, you know, the trajectory of the dart, uh, they had better uh, muscle efficiency, right? Which allowed their body to kind of naturally self-organize and place the dart where it needed to be. Um, and we see this same thing supported through, again, 25 years of research, and it's now started to be applied in uh, the resistance training field, which is where my interest lies. 
And so uh, 2004 was the first study done on the neuromuscular level and resistance training uh, by Vance, and he did the bicep curls. Um, there's been bench press studies done, lat pull downs. Uh, more recently, Israel Halperin did uh, isometric mid-thigh pull. And so now we're starting to see that even force production is enhanced when we think externally versus internally. Um, so my line of thought here, you know, as my wheels are spinning and coming up with, you know, my research ideas, you know, if we have enhanced neuromuscular efficiency through an external focus, well, really that's what strength is. Um, as you learn, as you get stronger, right, or initially everybody gets stronger because their body's learning to co-coordinate, you know, muscle contractions um, and to recruit certain motor units efficiently. And a lot of that leads to the enhancement of muscular strength. So if that can be improved with an external focus, there's one key indicator that it might improve strength. Uh, next is the enhancement of force production. So if an external focus enhances force production, well, what's strength, right? Max amount of force that you can produce. And so if I can produce a greater force, maybe I can lift a heavier weight over time and therefore then get stronger. Um, so I have a couple different studies going on right now. Um, one is looking at acute strength. So what's going on EMG-wise um, at 65, 75, and 85% rep max? Um, nobody's looked above 80 at what's going on between internal and external focus. And then I'm also looking at a dynamic strength test, which is the one rep max test, and if it's different under those conditions. Um, there's really only been isometric strength tests that have been done. Um, and I feel that if this is a theory of motor learning, right, and your muscles have to co-coordinate a lot better under an external focus, that there will be more of an effect seen in some type of dynamic task because I'm allowing this theory to actually work. Um, and then... But aren't you yeah, limited by your pool? Uh, aren't you going to be limited by your pool? I mean, the majority of studies usually done on beginners. So they put these right. things like an isometric contraction and everybody can do it. But when you start talking about lifting weights over 80% or 85% or, you know, one RMs say, you know, over 90, now you're right. asking for a more specialized athlete or somebody that actually has exposure to this. Right. And then all of a sudden now it's very, it's much more difficult to pull a, uh, I guess like a, a sample pool or figure out like, Hey, you know, this guy, like, um, cause I guess there's more variables. Like how long have you been training? What kind of training style you've been doing? Like, let's say somebody did some, uh, you know, slow eccentric kind of bodybuilder S deal versus an Olympic lifter. That's, you know, used to more dynamic movement. it seems like the pool becomes much more segmented and much more, you know, I guess specialized. So then you have to try to find people that fit within it to try to create some form of control. Yeah, absolutely. And that's been one of the biggest challenges and uh, is recruiting and finding that special population. Um, you know, they have to have trained over a year, have to barbell bench press, you know, at least once a week. If thousands of people following training programs that fit yeah. within this paradigm uh, that you're looking for, that we record information almost daily through uh, and we collect all this stuff and yeah. uh, they follow training systems very similar. So there's probably an opportunity um, you know, Chris Morris, one of the guys at, uh, the guy Kentucky, you know, he follows our training and mm -hmm. is, uh, you know, super, uh, impactful and also, you know, contributes for that. So as I'm sitting there, like listening to this, I always thought that, uh, like I, 
uh, one of the gals that worked for us, um, Callie, she was one of our coaches and she's gone on and now she's a cop in Seattle, but she got a whole bunch of these old bodybuilding magazines off of eBay, bought like this, you know, huge crate of them. And, uh, mm-hmm. I sat down and started flipping through them and like, it was amazing information that we've since forgotten. But one of them talked about the mind muscle connection, that if you can focus on a muscle while it's lifting and contracting, you can build a bigger muscle. And, uh, I always kind of thought like, oh, maybe there is something to that. And I guess as we're sitting here today, it seems it almost negatively affects strength. Uh, well possibly, but not with hypertrophy. So the study that we just published last mm-hmm. year, uh, we looked at bicep curls and leg extensions and we did see, um, an improvement in hypertrophy in the bicep. Um, we didn't see a significant effect on the quadricep. Um, and again, it was more of an untrained population. And so maybe they couldn't maybe actually create that mind muscle, you know, as efficient as they could work as, you know, since youth, everybody knows how to flex a bicep, right? Um, I would hope. So maybe that would, you know, or, or explain why we found it in the bicep versus the quadricep. It's pretty interesting. If you ask beginners, they really don't know how to flex a muscle. That was an interesting thing. And then we, um, uh, we worked with the whole population of injured athletes and they had a hard time actually activating certain muscles. And we used EMS devices to get mm-hmm. the, uh, motor unit recruitment kind of indiscriminately using it through the pads. And then once we were able to teach it, um, their ability to flex, it became better. And I actually figured that out in 99 when I ruptured my patellar tendon and mm-hmm. I couldn't get my quadricep to fire. And then it was, uh, I got plugged in with Charlie Francis through Mauro de Pasquale and this kind of deal. And Charlie's the one that recommended the EMS to kind of almost teach the quad how to fire. Right. And, uh, it was crazy. I started using it and within six weeks, like it made the most remarkable progress where I couldn't even squat 135. And then six weeks later, I'm, you know, farther along that I'd been within the previous six months. Mm-hmm. And he's like, sometimes you just gotta help it along, show it the way. And, uh, I, yeah, no, I mean, it, it's pretty fascinating that, I mean, it seems like so many times within strength training and sport that we almost want to pull the mental aspect out of it and just kind of put it on the physical and say, hey, you know, this athlete can jump, he can lift, he can do all these things. He has the physical attributes to be a, to perform at a high level. And then if he chokes, it's like, oh, he doesn't have the confidence. Never realizing that, like, you know, why somebody does this thing and that the fact that so much of it's mental, I mean, it's, uh, I mean, it would make sense that for, you know, recruiting a bicep, but it sounds like also you found that uh, necessary hypertrophy doesn't lead to strength gains. We always thought that a larger cross-sectional size of a muscle should theoretically be able to support more weight, but that's not always the case. Yeah, I mean, and having that mind-muscle connection, I, I mean, it, see, I go back and forth with this stuff because at some point you want to say, okay, that it matters, but at the same time, we're seeing so many benefits to the external focus, right? People are able to perform more repetitions till failure uh, under an external focus. Um, you know, again, people can produce those greater forces. They can have better technique. They learn um, they learn technique and motor skills faster under external focus conditions too. It's being used in rehab now as an instruction. So they're, you know, improving gait in multiple sclerosis patients, you know, their reach to, um, grasp techniques, um, and in post-stroke patients. And so it's, you know, I don't know. That's why I want to keep studying it. Um, you put it in like a clinical situation. Like you have somebody, let's say they had a stroke. And then the, if you were to give an example of like the external versus the internal, would the external be, Hey, I want you to grab this opposed from, 
I want you to get the muscles in your shoulder to fire in such a way that I can move my hand over and then use the muscles in my hand to squeeze and then lift this up a post from, I want you to grasp this and move it, move it. Well, it doesn't even have to be that specific for the internal instruction. If you just say, um, grab that with your hand, then that's already an internal instruction and your body already starts to send a signal and enhances muscle activation all around that area. And Just then the, because you said hand. So Versus instead of like... Grab the cup. Oh. That's the external. Yeah. So just from that simple word change, again, we're seeing a big neuromuscular effect. So... Wow. Yeah, oh. it's quite interesting. Um, so how would we relate that? Like, let's say somebody was going to go squat in the gym and we were getting ready to, we were warming up. It's like, hey, I want you to go... Squeeze your butt cheeks. Squat that weight. Mm-hmm. Opposed from pushing to the ground versus having them jump and land. Essentially, the same movement pattern. They're not thinking about it. They're thinking about the up, and then they just catch. But then that almost goes back to you know cueing as a negative, like a, a internally so negatively affecting. Like we would say, hey, I want you to, like you said, I want you to press your big toe on the ground because we know if I push the big toe on the ground, I can get glute, greater glute activation. Opposed from like, hey, uh, as the bar sits on your back, I want you to you know drive the bar off your back. But but with that, we are asking them to focus on a thing, but there's so much going on and they're almost distracted, right? Thinking about grabbing that ground. They're not thinking about sitting their hips back or pushing up on the bar or anything else. So what so you're saying isn't is that the, internal and external isn't the best cue to squat the fucking weight. Well, that's what Dietz was saying a few episodes back. He, they had two platforms measuring bar speed. One cue was move the bar fast. The other was all of the internal cueing that would facilitate a fast squat. And the move the bar fast platform was consistently faster for each athlete. But they were also taking technique out of it by doing the single leg kind of uh, safety bar squat, Hatfield. I think it was a bilateral squat, though. Was it a bilateral squat? Mm -hmm. But it goes back to exactly what Rachel was talking about, where as soon as you start to create that internal interference, performance starts to suffer, right, in terms of... Yeah. And again, if you're getting, you know, stiffer movements, they, they also did do some research on lifting velocity with internal and external and lifting velocity goes up with an external focus versus an internal mm-hmm. lifting the same weight. Um, and so, I mean, again, you're just interfering with everything. So you're basically creating noise in your system when you refer right. to the body. Right. Um, so it becomes difficult as a coach because sometimes you have to really think about it and be creative with your cues, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and apply a life cycle to it. Going back mm-hmm. to the novice, you know, like early on, maybe you have to be deliberate, but you make that compromise in terms of performance. But as proficiency increases, then you can start to be more external in general with your cueing because your athlete has that competence. Uh, years ago, there was an article in Powerlifting Magazine, and it had to do with uh, working with kids that had disabilities, and there are kids that had you know different leveling degrees of like um, you know mental disability from you know uh, uh, Down syndrome, and they you know had this whole powerlifting team of these kids, and they couldn't communicate with them in conventional ways. So like, hey, I want you to squeeze your butt. So what they started doing is uh, like what they. I, I can't remember the term. It was like uh, something with like pre-activations, like wakening up the muscles. And what they would do is they would slap the muscles that were most associated with the movement that they were going to perform. Like if they were going to squat, they like slapped them on the, on the quads and on the glutes and on the hamstrings. And then they, and then they would tell the kid, 
you know, and they, they knew it and they would go in, they would go bench, they would slap the chest and the shoulders and arms. And there was something with like the slap to like wake them up and cause they couldn't, you know, communicate them with them in a conventional way. And I always thought that if like, you know, and this is here we are in 2019, I probably can't go and, you know, slap a you know 14 year old, you know, <laughs> on the ass and say, Hey, I want you to remember to use your glutes. But like at that time, uh, well, you could slap me, John, <laughs> <laughs> only if you pay extra, not everybody gets that, uh, but, I'll uh, pay anything. uh, my training partner and I, uh, guy, Kevin Doherty, we, uh, we read the article in powerlifting magazine and that was the summer I was, um, I played football at Berkeley and, uh, we were trying to all bench 500 pounds. It's like a big deal. And so I remember we started incorporating it and I ended up benching over 500 that year. But I remember, uh, Kevin slapped me so hard on the, on the chest and the shoulders that when I went to go bench that 500, I thought I was going to blow my peck out and I didn't. <laughs> and, uh, but that was also, we probably had been taking like Nodos and, uh, what was it? It was a Fedrin, Nodos and, uh, no, that was before. Like we were two fuels and a dream. <laughs> no, we was, you, you got to remember we, we didn't have money for this. We were too broke. So we used to go get these, uh, ephedrine things from the, the drugstore and we'd mix them with aspirin and Nodos. Oh, yeah. Those and we, we take, we take those and we go I in and bench. Call that riot punch. Ah, <laughs> uh, I call it heart palpitations. And, uh, so we, we take these and I remember he slapped me super hard on the chest and I ended up benching 500. Um, so it, it was five Oh five and it worked and Tried true training tactics from uh, John Wellborn. <laughs> <yeah, laughs> don't do that. Uh, but I, I always thought that like there, there wasn't any cueing. There was just a lot of yelling and it was more like, Hey, like uh, I'm activating and waking it up with some form of trauma. But it's, uh, it's pretty fascinating to think that we can, that the body, I mean, but like, I don't know why we think the body's stupid. I mean, every time we talk to you, right. people are like amazed by these things and you're like, and I'm sure in your research, as you're sitting there at cocktail parties and bars talk, talking to people about this, they're like, so you're telling me that the muscle fires differently based off of a one word deal, like opposed from like, grab that cup versus use your hand to grab that cup. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's pretty epic. Serious question here. And I don't know how to even qualify it intelligently, but is there an option? You have this internal and external, but what about totally absent where you're distracting a trained athlete from any sort of focus on the movement and relying on their unconscious competency. Is there, yeah, so that's what they've been doing with, they've had control conditions in most of these and it is just completely, you know, complete the task or whatever it is. Yeah, just and daydream about whatever. Still outperforms. Hmm. There you go. So text can't continue to daydream while you're lifting. Or you could. Well, you were dreaming today while we were lifting. Did you go back yeah. to sleep and miss our training time? Luke slept in. He missed 6 a.m. barbell club. And I oh. had a, and I took a rest day yesterday. Which uh, today was uh, heavy floor press, heavy dumbbell, slight incline, and then we did a bunch of uh, jammer arm banded craziness. Uh -huh. And John was telling me during the banded incline press on our Sorenex jammer arms, mm -hmm unsolicited uh i was telling you internal like, cueing so what what i found is uh so uh sornix has these jammer arms that we hook up into kind of mm -hmm. this uh incline deal and we hook up a bunch of band tension and what i always like to do is get to the very end of the movement and then i press as hard as i can about the movement and then i think about flexing my pec as hard as i can and then holding the contraction yeah, and then slowly that. bringing it back and it's really the only movement that i think about other than Every other time I lift weights, um, I go into this, uh, like, uh, I mentally safe like turn. space. No, like, like, like I think people are super conscious when they lift weights and they train this mind, mind muscle. I actually have this, uh, um, 
strange place I go to where I just turn off everything and I just uh, become like I don't know it's it's just a strange thing like I, I like um, whereas I think some people are super conscious of what they're doing uh, I, this, I become this goes totally into what ta- we teach in the methodology but I become totally task oriented of like I have to move this from point A to point B and the least or the the least I can involve myself in the movement like, I think our own noise is what fucking hurts most people. And I saw this playing football where people get inside their own head. I'm like, just become an idiot, man. Become a very simple well, that, individual. That's, that's our objective. And, Rachel, what we try to teach coaches is essentially go through old school competency model, right? Incompet- in, unconscious incompetence, conscious incompetence, competent uh, conscious competence and then unconscious competence. Don't look at me like that. <laughs> Essentially, we, we, Watching, spent, judging. We, we spent a lot of years going and traveling around the world and working with a lot of CrossFit coaches. And mm-hmm. that sport is essentially conscious competence all the time. And we had to break them through that. When we were training athletes, the objective is to teach them how to move. But so well in the gym, when they step onto the field, the court, the rink, whatever it may be, they don't have to think about the execution of the squat step and lunge. They've done right. it so many times and it frees them up to read the defense, read the play, read, react. But that's, you've had so many reps at that, John, in the playing days. And Rachel, I'm sure you have. Just like what my dad told me, it was court. counting to 10 over and over again and the idiots could do it. And I was like, perfect, I'm in. No, but they, people concentrate so hard on the execution of these movements, we don't want them to. So whether that's exposure, opportunity, mm-hmm. direction, internal, external, I guess overall... Goal Wouldn't you say to, you don't free want them, them up? Tex, have you ever seen The Last Samurai? Well, Wouldn't it be more accurate to say in the, last the samurai. desired outcome is to have that type of proficiency, but it, it, early on, they, don't may expect to, it. Dude, oh, they may need to focus on it. But yeah, that's why we If you had seen The Last Samurai, you'd understand this piece. Because well, he, he goes through this it. whole thing where he's relaxed and spoiler, he sees everything go alert. through his head. And then all of a sudden, <laughs> yeah, this, he's the worst. As he goes through his head, he sees it happen, and then all of a sudden the movement takes place, and he's able to like see this like a uh, uh, he's clairvoyant in a way. He knows how he's going to react because he's done it so many times. And like to me, that's that- that's like the highest thing where you're able to see the movement before like the execution, and then go into a state to, just to go execute that movement. But that only comes with like. Uh, extensive amount of training and I think what's hard the, it's with her the, research is because the majority of research whenever I read it, it's always on uh, unadapted untrained individuals that they just yank yeah. off the street that are between like 18 and 25 years old and it's like uh, and you know and then you look at like the trained population but there's so many controls that it's almost next to impossible to figure out like so yeah, yeah. well I mean because really I mean we're looking at strength so okay can we control lifting velocity no, not really, because what are you going to use a metronome? And then that takes their focus away completely. And then, you know, the study's yeah. crap. So yeah, yeah. Um, it, it's you can only control what you can control. <laughs> Try cool. and control as much as possible, but you still want to, you know, we'll see what the results of this are and then maybe change some stuff. And I'll probably take a break from training studies for a little while. Just <laughs> well, I mean, we, uh, even in our setting, we, uh, we were using like the Tendo device to, uh, to measure bar speed. Mm-hmm. And it was pretty fascinating watching the different lifters. Um, and we were using like huge cross section of like, it was Luke and I, we had a, a girl that was a high level track athlete. who was about five, two. We had another girl that was taller. And so we had all these different, uh, different body types, different exposures, different athletes, right. uh, different strength levels. 
uh, trying to figure out like, okay, how do we maximize speed for, for each individual? And we would have them squat in different ways. And, you know, the idea that, Hey, you know, the, uh, you know, the, the shortest distance between two points is in, you know, it was a straight line, but it wasn't necessarily the fact on that was, it was like, what was the most advantageous for that squat off of that person based off of the anthropometrical ratios and how they did it. And it was uh, super fascinating to watch people that like just weren't fast but mm-hmm. yet they didn't have a training history of speed. And so, you know, and then the girl that we had who was the track athlete, I mean, once we fixed her squat, it was like she was like a rocket. She was like, the, you know, like a um, like a rubber ball going up and down. And it just became like, um, is it because uh, she had done these movement patterns so many times that she was efficient, her training history? And then you, I mean, but there's so many variables that we couldn't but, figure it out. But look at those two two ladies. Like, would it surprise you that Amanda would take a like an external approach to her uh, how to lift that weight and Chelsea would take an internal you yes. know what i mean so then right there creates that performance deficit for the that 100%. internal visualization right so like personality type even comes in on this Rachel it, as you're going through a lot of this research like is there a is there like a longitudinal version of this where an individual is you know, has that internal focus over um, 90 sessions, external focus over 90 sessions and like a trend line associated with that or? Um, yeah, that's what uh, we're studying right now. Oh, cool, so cool. there's the one that we did um, last year was eight weeks. Um, and then the only other longitudinal study that had been done was on jumping, a plyometric training. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is really only going to be the second study in resistance training that's longitudinal in nature so they're training under either an internal mm-hmm. or an external focus for six weeks so and it seems that it's challenging to even get people to do that so wow <laughs> yeah. well don't well don't, donkeys out there don't people use a mix of both like i was kind of thinking about that mm-hmm. like oh, yeah, um, yeah. uh you know like i i always love the uh you know when you get done with a lift or your training and somebody goes well how did it feel mm-hmm. and how always thought that was i'm like heavy like fast like i yeah. like uh you know i remember uh i squatted uh we we were fucking around with some of the uh, west side stuff and we and I, I ended up getting a pair of these like briefs and i was gonna squat heavy or whatnot and i squatted i think it was like 800 pounds and nate was like how did it feel i'm like like my head was gonna explode and like i never moved so fast in my life and uh he's like well i'm glad you got it because uh there was no way we were able gonna pick it off you if you couldn't squat it and I remember thinking, like, well, thank God I didn't have that in my mind or I totally would have fucking died that day. <laughs> yeah, for sure. You know, I was yeah. just trying to move the weight. But I, I think... Uh, is, is death an internal or an external cue? Uh, I think if you, if you lift weights heavy enough for long enough, uh, you come to this realization of, like, this weight's really fucking heavy. Um, if something goes wrong, like, what's my game plan? And then, if you, and then you get to the point where you're like, if, it, if I die, I die. And then you're just like, thank God, it's over. Never thought that once. <laughs> so you're thinking about your body, so I'd say that might be an internal. That, yeah, that's yeah. internal. Or Nothing. it's an end result, so I guess it could be either way. Well, <laughs> survival to me as an external be like, live, survive. My, nothing to it but to do it. Got to want it. Those are the uh, two cues you, you know, need. but with uh, West Side, Matt Wenning gives the, you know, the cue to rip the floor apart instead of you know pushing the knees out when you squat, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's one that I've kind of taken on teaching in our advanced resistance training course is a good cue. Um, a lot of times you have to use analogies or mm-hmm. things like that. 
trying to get fancy with your cues too. Yeah, and I always people through analogies, and that's something that you can always relate them back to when they're lifting. Yeah, we. I, I guess I we'll like the sports specific cueing. Just what sport do they play? Look for that movement pattern or direction a sport coach would use, mm-hmm. and then just bring it into the weight room. Well, I, I like to crack the walnut between your butt cheeks one. That was my personal favorite. So I don't know if that's internal or external, <laughs> but like you that. Took, that you take yeah. that literally. Yeah. No, well, I have a walnut. Were, yeah. yeah I, I, and then I pulled out the walnut. People's well, you said butt cheeks. So you, you need to say either crack the walnut or if you say crack it with your butt cheeks, that's internal. So this was fascinating to me. Um, and I never like there's there's certain things when I talk to people about strength training, I'm like, wow, that never fucking crossed my mind. Like the biggest one was at the bottom of the squat. Uh, a lot of people actually push out, uh, like of their internal, like, like they're trying to go to the bathroom. Like they push out a post from like, Oh God, I think I ate something bad. I got to try to keep it in. He's talking about the butthole people. Yeah. And so that was an interesting one talking to people and be like, okay, at the bottom of the squat, like, what are you thinking about? And they're like, well, I'm trying to push out as hard as I can. I'm like, don't do that. Cause you're going <laughs> to, you're going to blow it over and mess yourself up opposed from like, I want you to like clench everything in. And then when you get to the bottom, think about sucking it all in. And I remember that cue was uh, people are like, wow, I never thought about that. And I'm like, man, I never thought like you thought. I would never think that way. Like, that's how you end up with like an embarrassing, you know, Instagram video of like you just exploding out or passing gas or doing something embarrassing in the mm-hmm. weight room. Mm-hmm. So, zip it up. Yeah. That, low. Is, is that what he says? Zip it up? Zip it up from like front to back, I guess, in the nether regions of your... Netherlands? Netherlands. Man, it's crazy. Yeah, we do have an article series coming out about men's pelvic health. So dropping that in here. Oh. Check us out, powerathletehq.com. Oh, pelvic health. Uh, Tex and I were talking about it today. Um, which pelvic is, health? No, we were talking about the fact that uh, Jesse Burdick just hit. Um, oh, I just yeah. saw he had his, uh, he was the same age, he had his hip replaced. What? So, yeah, Jesse had his hip replaced. And people always ask me, they were like, man, you've been pretty much lifting heavy weights since you were 14. You're 42 now. Like, do you have any major issues? I'm like, not from lifting weights. My major issues came from 10 years in the NFL. Like, that messed me up. I never thought about getting, like, but I also took the thought that if I get hurt in the weight room, it's going to negatively affect my job. So. Yeah, why would you take the risk? Yeah, but. Hmm. Well, that's a question I always had for our, our shot putters, the guys that we interact with, Woodski, because and Rachel maybe got some experience in different sports training these athletes in the weight room they would overload to the point where they would blow something out knee hip muscle in the weight room in training so they're fighting so hard for performance in the track and field or their their sport and competition that they mess themselves up in the training like what i don't know have you seen that well, you know why? Their mama wouldn't let them sign the prescri- or uh, permission slip, so they got to hurt themselves. If you play football or rugby, I'm going to get hurt anyway. Why would I hurt myself in the weight room? Doesn't that make sense? Maybe. Maybe. Oh, were they training on their own? Uh, or I, 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 stories mostly came from college weight room, blow, getting injured, and fucking yeah. themselves up. No, I would hope that wouldn't be the case, but... I think it's just probably the mindset of a direct connection between your intensity of training and the out the outcome of your performance. And maybe that was just the mindset and culture back then. So it's like if you can get, you know, from your 425 to 430 
uh, 20 RM fucking back squat or whatever, that's going to put another three tenths on your shot put. I don't fucking know. I'm totally speculating. Oh, this is a good one to one. But maybe that was just the culture. Like, and I, I think, I've seen it in high school, mm-hmm. you know. But again, that's just so they can get their name on the wall in a certain, you know, pound lifting club and things like that. But there's also poor technique going on when oh, usually yeah. that happens too. So, do, do, do you see a change in like, um, obviously you saw outcomes, but like something more subjective, like when it was internal versus external with like technique? Um, was there, uh, you know, cause I mean, I always love where people are like, Oh, I, I lifted this weight and then they send us a video or, or like I, I get tagged in these Instagram things and I'm always like, Oh God, uh, um, they're like, what do you think? I'm like, uh, I, it looks dangerous. Like, um, you know, like, cause like the limiting factor rarely, uh, is somebody's limit strength. It usually is a break in technique or like, you know, they don't have enough trunk stability or they get out of position and other key factors. So I wonder if, uh, there's any, you know, but then how do you quantify technique in terms of a study? Like, right. I mean, it's subjective for me, but what I've seen, I have seen like under the external condition, uh, you know, a couple of the lifters have really improved their bench press technique specifically. Um, they've also progressed a little bit faster and going up in weight also. So, don't know what that means till the end, but, um, you know, well, just, could you give us an example on bench press? Like if you were going to do internal versus external focus, mm-hmm. like, um, I mean, are you just loading the weight and just like nodding your head or are you actually giving them some form of direction to stimulate mm-hmm. like external internal? No, they have a cue. They're either lifting the bar or squeezing their chest. So lifting the bar is the external group and then squeeze the chest is the internal group. So the external we saw gets stronger, but the squeeze the chest group got more hypertrophy. No, so this, this is a study I'm doing right now on strength. So you'll just have to stress. wait, buddy. Ah, okay. uh, um, well, the hypertrophy study that we did was bicep curls and leg extensions. But based on research, yes, the squeeze of the chest would get better hypertrophy and then lift the bar would get better strength. So Interesting. Yeah, but as far as technique, I mean, there's, there is better technique shown through like some other biomechanical research on jumping and landing. So, um, which is another interest of mine being a volleyball athlete, but, um, in studying this further at some point, they looked at landing technique under internal and external conditions with drop jumps. And they saw that a more efficient landing technique occurs under, um, an external focus versus internal. So there's a little bit better knee flexion. So they're landing a little less stiff whenever they're thinking external. Um, And then they also look at motor unit firing and they see that it's more efficient under an external. Um, And so the hamstring, I think, wasn't being, the one study I read wasn't being kind of fired or turned on um, as quickly as it should be under an internal focus which could increase your risk of an ACL injury when landing. Um, And so there is some, you know, an association between what cues we're giving and whether or not you could be putting somebody at a greater risk of an injury, um, specifically with landing, which I'm interested in furthering a little bit of that research as well. Um, But they do see better technique under an external condition. I guess in general, that external insight is kind of is simpler right in the sense that it's a it's a more simple instruction hey push on the bar versus squeeze your chest i don't know 
But and also puts them in a position to solve a problem with their body, mm-hmm. move through right. space and map and which eventually carry over. problem solving, dude. Uh-huh. Yeah, your body knows what to do. Again, it's smart, you know, as you mentioned before. And so we're letting it just figure things out versus us trying to control it. So the micromanaging negatively affects. Yeah. But I mean, there's a lot of lifters that they're, and this is why we kind of started studying the resistance training stuff is it is a pretty common practice to think about, you know, the muscles flexing. You know, you see a lot of personal trainers too giving cues like squeeze your shoulder blades together, you know, on a row or something like that. You know, we're always giving some type of body reference uh, when coaching. I and usually try to do the opposite of what you want. <laughs> I, I, whenever we go to a commercial gym, I usually try to look for whatever the personal trainers are telling people and then usually do the opposite. <laughs> yeah. Like uh, we, we years ago, we were actually training at this global gym um, like this. Yeah. So and I remember uh, uh, this this trainer had this like, you know, maybe like 14, 15 year old girl in there and she was obviously a volleyball player. And as she laid down, they were going to do bench press. And all of a sudden, she like brings the bar off, and it's like going every which way. And I felt like I was like, oh my god, it's internister muscular coordination. I'm seeing it in the wild. Like the first element of strength training. Like like I was so excited to see it. And he like grabbed the bar and like slammed it back. And was like, oh, that looks terrible. Let's go on the Smith machine. And I was like, no, no coordination is the first element of strength training. Like if you rob her of this, it's going to like you know uh, you know stunt the growth or, or stunt her progress. And I remember thinking like, man, that's. Uh, if that dude had any practical knowledge of how strength is built and the progression and how, you, you know, the trials and tribulations that you have to go through in terms of success and failures and whatnot, uh, he would have not done that. And I remember thinking like, all right, I'm just going to go to the gym and whatever the dude's saying, we probably should do the opposite. And, uh, I just saw more bad training in, in, uh, you know, within the commercial gym setting that I'd ever seen. And that's why they lift a lot of machines. Ah, that looks terrible. Let's just go lift a machine instead of like, Hey, let's figure this way or I need to improve my coaching. So. Rachel, we have this challenge, this Globo Gym challenge that we put out to our followers in that if they are training in a Globo Gym, mm-hmm. it's like Fight Club when they said your homework's to go pick a fight. We encourage our people to <laughs> go try to teach a personal trainer how to train. Mm-hmm. So interrupt right in front of their client's face and see if they're able to put them in a position to save that athlete. It's the opposite of a fight. We're saving somebody. <sighs> but you're assuming they're athletes. Mm-hmm. So the best trick the devil ever played was convincing the world that everybody was an athlete. Mm-hmm. So my other favorite one, the best trick the devil ever played was convincing the world that athleticism and work capacity were the same things. So do you step in when you see that at the gym? Well, my gym, yeah, it's just us three in the 6 a.m. Oh. So <laughs> all we did is uh, all yeah. <laughs> uh, I owned a commercial gym. Uh, Luke came out and worked for me at our gym. Texit worked in a commercial setting. And we finally got to the point where uh, we just rented like a small like uh, industrial spot and mm-hmm. brought all of our equipment in there. And there, there was we wanted a gym. We wanted to lift weights. We just didn't want to have members. And then when we, we moved from California here to Texas, uh, we built a 5,000 square foot building filled it with the best equipment. And then it's us and there are no clients and we can just show up and like lift weights and have fun without the thought of like, oh, my God, what's going on here? So. Showing up's optional. 
sleeping. On Thursdays. <laughs> Apparently hey, this morning it was. <laughs> well, here's the thing, Rachel. You know, when uh, when all the boys come in on Tuesday to pull heavy and uh, you got a 10-year NFL veteran and someone short, like the closest to the ground I've ever seen, and only one of you pulls 545 for five on Trap Bar Deadlift. He did get us. I, I came you in. you take home the trophy for that day. I came you home and, and told my wife, I was like, uh, I think there's been only maybe two or three times in my entire knowing Luke that uh, he's actually beat me in anything. And it was today. And my wife was like, wow, what are you going to do? And I'm like, I probably have to just go back to the drawing board, refigure this thing out. And uh, I, it's good. Like, I think when you have been winning for as long as I have, it's complacency. And I think it's good to get beat on occasion because what it does is it'll spark me up and then I'll have to pull more for next time. So I took a couple days off. <laughs> Luke's wife is pregnant. And uh, so what he's doing is he's relishing in this, like, oh, I'm going to sleep in because I know once the baby comes, I'm not going to get any sleep. So I think he's taking it to a new level. Sleep bank. Yeah, so on my on my weekday alarm, so I have my alarm app. I set it for two minutes to time out, and I figure if I don't wake up of two minutes straight of alarm, then I shouldn't like something's fucking wrong. But then on like the cert alarm or the travel alarm, that one just keeps going and gets louder and louder and louder because you don't want to miss a flight, yeah, or miss cert. So that's how that works. Maybe some listeners at home would use that same thing. But how many people have a job where, oh, slept in. See you guys when I get there. Mm. Who, who has that job? I do. Oh, I didn't know you had that job. Yeah, I just did, did it today. Did you know that? No. I, I just did it today. I did not know that. But the crazy thing is, Rachel, like I slept in, but still was the first one in the office. That is not true. <laughs> I walked down from the gym to the office. Uh, I, and I was sitting here alone with the lights off, and you're like, are you okay? Yeah, listening to Endless Love. Uh, no, he was listening to Coldplay just over and over again. <laughs> no, it was Meatloaf. <laughs> uh, so, Rachel, how have you seen your research change your coaching? So over the past eight years, applying one thing, and now here we are, based off diving in. Um, <clears throat> well, really... <laughs> Coming from a biomechanics background, um, the mechanical thing was the deal, right? So I'm always teaching mechanics and how do you teach mechanics other than referencing body parts, you know? Um, and so that was a really big challenge for me to try and change some of those cues. And um, often if you have, you know, uh, or you're teaching a new skill or a new lift or something to somebody that's, I think, when it becomes the most challenging, um, trying to get them to do what you want them to do without, you know, referencing the body. Um, I think at some point you have to when you're working with a beginner. And then once they get into a certain movement pattern, then you can switch over to an external um, cue. Um, I, I can't say that there's no place for internal um, like talking to some physical therapists and, you know, they're telling me, well, we're trying to recreate that, you know, mind muscle connection. How do we do that without an internal cue? So it's like, okay, so you're not trying to get the quadriceps strong yet, right? You're just trying to rechannel that connection then yeah, start out internal, but then switch them to external eventually. Um, so it's been challenging, but I've, you know, also seen, um, I guess, some, some results from changing my cues to external. Um, I think that people, when they have something to relate to, learn faster also. So they might pick up a skill a little bit better. Um, 
there again, I've seen the lifting techniques improve with some of the people that I've coached as well. So again, there, there have been challenges, but, um, I think overall it, you know, has been better for me. So there's learning experiences that have gone on with it too, which is another part of coaching that I enjoy. So yeah, definitely. Do you plan on documenting that? So publishing formal research and then maybe a piece about your application and development that doesn't have to necessarily be like as like as rigorous. rigorous as a publication? Yeah, maybe in something like a different type of journal mm-hmm. or something. Yeah. Um, I pretty much probably have a ton of papers written <laughs> on this already, just nothing that, you know, I've had time to submit. Um, but yeah, I mean, I've even, you know, written something about, you know, the controversy between internal and external and who feels one way versus the other. And, you know, when we should actually use internal versus external or external versus internal and so forth. Um, and so, I mean, there's been two studies that showed a benefit of an internal focus, um, One was with children, but again, about 30% of the children said they didn't even follow the focus. So it's like, okay, can we really trust this research when 30% of the people didn't even follow it? Um, Yeah, I was going to ask you on the takeaways for kids, uh, if there was any benefit, like as I'm yelling at my kids to do things, if if there's a way for me to phrase it, like uh, instead of being like, take your hands, reach down, pick up your clothes and put them in the basket, opposed (laughs) to me just screaming, you know, pick up the fucking clothes off the floor and put them in the basket. Yeah, I don't know. You know what? We should study that because <laughs> I can initially say that it would be an external because they'll learn it faster. But there's also, you know, that um, I guess that shock or trauma that you're giving them from yelling in that manner that would actually train change some of their brain chemistry. So it might, you know, stick in there a little well, bit. Is don't fear think. a good thing? Uh, I wonder that for kids all the time. Like I, I, I remember my mom yelled at us a lot and we did a lot of things just out of pure fear that we didn't want to get yelled at anymore what, that's what it means like that external if you know mom raises that hand you know or don't make me count or you just start See, the one here's the difference my, what kind of cue is one my mom didn't telegraph anything <laughs> so my mom was like unbelievable with like there was no telegraph there was no uh, uh like you know like foreshadowing but that's what it was just like a dropping an atomic bomb and then we didn't know what was going to happen that's what heightened your spatial awareness and spider senses and reaction john <laughs> that's the trick that's the secret that's what we got to study okay all right yeah there's uh actually an interesting bar conversation i got into i was sitting at a brewery and i don't even know how it came up but sometimes these things just do And the gentleman that I was sitting next to worked in um, childhood trauma. So he was a psychologist. So we started talking about the brain um, because one of the things with attentional focus, I've started setting outside of my scope. So looking at neurology, looking at psychology and all these other things. Um, And so he was mentioning how, uh, how the brain develops and everything. And if you give it like a shocking stimulus, like if you're yelling all the time, then they kind of shut down, right? And then it's not really effective for them anymore because they're just going to say, oh, our body's used to it and it's not stimulating me. Whereas if they have like, um, or they live in a state of chaos and it's not a predictable behavior where it's like, oh, you got yelled at for this and then you got yelled at because you did it the other way. So you don't really know what's going on. That's where they're constantly stimulated and constantly having, you know, adrenaline rushes and fear setting in and all these things. 
So I think that if you yell all the time like that, tell your kids to always pick something up, then it's not going to affect them anymore. So you got to keep it random. Well, I'm, <laughs> you know, the interesting thing is you start with like, hey, uh, you know, you got to pick your stuff up. And then you're like, you know, you got to pick your stuff up. And then I think there's like this, escalate. there's this escalation where right. all of a sudden uh, they're like linear progression. Yeah. Of yelling. They, they, yeah. They're like, yeah. yeah. Okay. And you're like, you need to pick that stuff up. And See, John, like, yeah. you need to use the conjugate parenting method um, that I'm going to pioneer where sometimes <laughs> yeah, you yell you and sometimes you hug yeah. them. They're like, what the fuck's going on? Uh, yeah. No. It's like, hey, good job for not picking that shit up. <laughs> they're like, why did dad just hug me for fucking up? Uh, you, you know what I do is... It's uh, called muscle confusion. No, nah, yeah. and then you just get to the point where you just start picking it up yourself. And you're like, Never. you know what? This is going to negatively affect the rest I, of my day. I'm just going to pick it up. And then other times you just take their stuff and hide it. That's, that's another big one. Instead and, and of the hamper, it's the trash. And they're, they're like, hey, where was all that stuff? I'm like, I threw it away. I told you to pick it up. You didn't pick it up, so I just threw it away. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to throw all your stuff away from now on. And then they get, they get pretty upset on that one. <laughs> oh, you guys are going to see, man, uh, like the kids resolve their ability to like just tune you out and hear it. And you're like, that's why I know my mom would flip out. Like I didn't realize it until I was a parent why my mom's fuse was so short. Because it's like she probably told us to do stuff. We didn't do it or we did exactly what we wanted. And then she would just fucking go to a hundred. Blow a gasket. Yeah. And then, you know, and then we'd be like, oh, mom's pissed again. Ooh. And now, now I think about it. I'm like, God damn it. We were bad kids. <laughs> Oh, I like I remember. <laughs> so we need more random parenting, huh? So uh, no, I just think uh, <laughs> like I wish I could just like give them like like I could find the supplement that I could give them that when they took it they were actually receptive to information and would like respond to it. Like, hey, hey I want you to have that for students too. Can I? Can you share? Uh, you little, know, a little rum. I know it goes good with you. <laughs> uh, I was thinking I think about. Unfortunately, it. what you need to give them is like that time, right? Because here you are reflecting. 30 years later, John, and you're like, man, if I would have just not been such an asshole or even as like a former student going back and looking at college, like if I would have just taken it a little okay, more seriously. So, so this comes with age because I remember in uh, when I was in grad school, uh, we had like people that had like gone off in life, worked, and then they came back and we just called them like the old students. Mm -hmm. So when I was in grad school, I was what, 22. And I was just so focused on trying to get the information and then get to the next place yeah, that, 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 that we, we'd be in class and they'd be like professor and they would ask these questions and we like look back and be like, Jesus Christ, the old students won't stop talking. They're fucking up my day. And, uh, and I, now if I got the chance to go back to grad school, I would be the worst. I'd be like, well, have you thought about this? I read this book and I would um, torture people into being there extra amounts of time to the mm -hmm. point where they'd want to fight me after I'd be like, let's go. I'll fight you. Mm -hmm. Like it just that one kid in class. Yeah. And, and I think like, uh, if I could, the worst thing that I think happened with college was the fact that I had to go from the age of 18 to 22. Like if I could have gone at like 36 or 40, I would have been so much more appreciative of the information and so much interactive, but I also playing football and trying to do all this stuff. Like you're only giving it like a, a, a small portion and I'm always disappointed that I couldn't give it 100% and just fucking soak it all in. So that's, I, think that's some of the, I think a lot of the veterans are probably some of my best students, right? Because they come in at a little bit older age and they are a little bit more focused and listen. And, you know, it's not like I flash that th what's uh, men in black, you know, the thing where they yeah. flash. Yeah. They get, like I give instructions and then all of a sudden it's like. And they forget it all. Like, wait, what do we do? <laughs> you know? who, who was the philosopher that said uh, um, too bad youth is wasted on the young? Hmm. Can't remember where that is. Marky Mark? Probably <laughs> not. The Rock? <laughs> yeah. No, I had a, a teammate who 
participated in Iraqi freedom and came back and played with us and was a 22-year-old freshman. And I was a, probably 20 years old at the time, and he just, I don't know, exuberated leadership. We had this freshman goalie who tried to cut in line after a game to just for the food, the barbecue, whatever we had. And he called him out for it, and the kid wouldn't listen. He's like, well, you're welcome for that blanket of freedom that you sleep in every night. And just essentially that kid just walked to the end of the line and, and was put in his place. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. They call that shaming now, and then you have to apologize and leave school if you do those type of things. That's right. Yeah, you're not allowed to do that anymore. You're not allowed to give people tough pills to swallow. Like, I can't even, like, you, you can't even give grades anymore. Uh, no. And you know what? what? They argue them anyways. <laughs> well, no, like, I, I saw a whole thing that um, uh, these kids were claiming that because the thought of getting a bad grade causes stress and stress is related to something negative, then the grades are actually hurting me and therefore I need to be protected from grades and being mm-hmm. judged. So that, that was one of the, the statements I heard recently. And I remember thinking like, Oh boy, if, uh, if this is how people are viewing academia and they're going to hope to get out in the real world, this is going to be really difficult for them to swallow. Yeah. I've, I've kind of brought that up in meetings before, you know, what are we really preparing them for? If we keep doing, I mean, they can't go get a job and do that or maybe they can now. I don't know, but those type of things have been brought up a lot. Ash was just reading an article about um, a law professor. They were covering some controversial, it was like civil law, a civil law class covering like a controversial civil law case. And um, I guess he just matter of factly said like, you know, I can't remember if it was uh, like a sex crime or a race thing. Like it was some sort of hate crime deal. Right. And um, the students got him ousted for covering the content and they're studying to be civil lawyers where they're going to be faced with this real because the same thing. They felt threatened and traumatized and he got fucking canned by a case study. No, by a legitimate, like a yeah, real yeah. case, not yeah, a study. Yeah, yeah, but he to, was presenting a case to yeah. use it as practice. Uh, yeah. he and would, Ash is like, how crazy is that? Because these like. There's a that's when you get into law because she worked with your brother yeah. right like there's bad shit that happens like you want to talk about offensive shit especially you get in the defense side of things like so my my brother oof. and my dad uh, my dad since passed away but uh, my brother uh, does like real high end uh, real nasty murder stuff like big time felony multiple murders and there's only like a certain amount and he he's in Orange County in L A and my dad did the same thing for like 50 years and like there's only a very very small percentage of lawyers that actually do that stuff because uh, not only is it extremely complex um, it's really fucking emotionally terrible to have to deal with this shit and go in and represent these people and uh, my dad could do it my brother Ed could do it and uh, when when you get into that level that those guys do it's a really really small community of people and like uh, talking with my dad or even talking to my brother about it and he's like He's like, dude, like the, you know, and my brother Eddie was just on, was it 60 Minutes just did a deal? Yeah, Yeah, he was on like Dateline or 60 Minutes for one of his cases uh, recently and like getting into it and him like having this, you know, veneer on about it. And like, I remember talking to my dad and he's like, you just have to compartmentalize and just not a lot of people can like, 
just leave it behind and then come home and go to bed at night. And surprisingly, my brother, my dad could, and it's, uh, but just talking to my brother about it, he's like, man, it just, um, he goes, I couldn't make this shit up. He goes, you could go to like a Hollywood, sit down at a movie set with like writers and bring in the smartest writers. And they couldn't come up with the shit that I hear happen in real life that these people come in and tell me. And my brother's always like, I can't believe this shit. But that's why law and order is, so running they're never going to run out of material it's it's pulled from real life yeah and then when you add like drugs and alcohol and other weird extraneous circumstances and like this whole thing and my brother's constantly like man i just can't fucking believe these people he's like it's fucking insane and uh but yeah i mean there's a situation i mean in in law where they're going to have to go out and defend people and do this and if you can't even prosecute just approach it and be involved in it right yeah, I mean, the prosecutor... Can, can a jury be offended and then leave? Mm, uh, you, you know what I mean? You can recuse yourself off of a jury. So when they go through jury selection, it's a pretty interesting process. And there's even like an art form to jury selection going in, how to face, you know, uh, phrase the questions in such a way that you're f- searching for either a sympathetic or non-sympathetic juror, and they oh, strike people. I got, jury, I got selected jury. when I went for jury duty. So I, I I went for jury duty, I got selected, and when they started asking me, and they were like, you know, are you familiar with these proceedings? And I was like, yeah, uh, my dad and my brother are both lawyers. And the guy's like, what was your name? He's like, oh, I know your brother and your dad. Uh, can we kick him off? And they booted me off right for that. <laughs> right. Well, I just, they made me sit. Uh, oh. Yeah, it was, inter- it was a learning experience. It was cool, I guess. Mm-hmm. Well, though, eventually we have this uh, video software here that one of the professors is trialing out. Um, FBI uses it, military uses it and everything, but they're going to have it in all these common places. So you'll go in for jury selection and the video can pick up whether or not you're telling the truth or whether you're biased to certain things, what your emotions are, you know, all that type of stuff. So bananas. Yeah. Wow. Does that have to do with efficiency of, you know, jury selection in cases for, you know lawyers and everything. But. Sure. So what, oh, it, it's going to come in and be able to read like emotions and, uh, you know, body temperature and all those like eye movement and all the key factors. I, uh, mm-hmm. I went to a course that, uh, these FBI guys taught that were, uh, um, like the world's best fucking people for telling if people were lying. And they went through like, it was something like the 32 tells that every liar tells. And, uh, it's pretty amazing that these guys have like this, like natural sixth sense mm-hmm. to know. And it's like, well, you're around liars all day. You know, when somebody's telling the truth. Yeah, I've heard of that. Uh, my brother went one of, through one of those training, and it was if people look down into the left before they say something, then they're like, so now, whatever, whenever I see somebody do that, I'm like, you know? You're like, oh, is this your work? Did you cheat on this? Or like, uh, no. Yeah. What yeah. I, I did or hear. they say, to be honest with you, that means that they lie sometimes because they shouldn't ever have to oh, say, to be honest uh, with you, you wow. know? I, I read somewhere, honestly. the higher you touch your face or scratch your head after you say something, the greater the lie. So every time Luke tells a story, <laughs> uh, I see how what high. What was I touching on 545 for five? Well, your hands were at your hip because it was true, but. Right. There's other stories. For six. Well, <laughs> <laughs> for somebody who's vertically challenged, when she said vertically challenged, that she's vertically challenged, did you mm-hmm. want to ask her how vertically challenged she you is? You never ask a woman how tall she is. No, I'll tell you how tall I am. How tall are you? Uh, like five, five and a half. So oh, in discuss. undergrad, oh, when I was that's... playing volleyball, I was five six. But I think wow. all the years of volleyball, you know. Well, I that's mean, crazy. Uh, Tex was six feet in high school in his program, and Luke was six five. Six five, yeah. program. two sixty. Program. Uh, I was no, I was five ten. <laughs> high school yeah. pro, high school football program. <laughs> oh Jesus! Yeah. yeah. Uh, so if I'm playing volleyball, I'm five six. But otherwise, I'm five five and a half. <laughs> I got you. And what was your touch? Uh, oh, At five, I don't five. even remember. Was your touch. 
Yeah. Isn't isn't it like ten foot eight is the or ten <laughs> foot two or something is for a girl? For, the net, I think for chicks. I don't think you know. We just that's, did our that's vertical touching the rim. Basically, mm-hmm. we never did like what our max touch was. Mm-hmm. Think, well, well, but I played outside hitter, so I could had to jump. Yeah, yeah, but but it, it, isn't that more about speed and reaction more so than the girls up front that are just up there just swatting things out of the out of the sky? I was up front. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. So up front on the left side. Yep. Yep, that's the outside hitter. Blocking. There you it, go. Is Blocking. there any other any other research outside of your expertise that you like to dive into just as a fan? Yeah, I mean, I've been reading a lot of stuff on uh, <clears throat> force velocity profiling and use that a lot here at ASU as well and have tested, you know, some rugby athletes with it and everything. Um, so mainly JB Marin's research on that um so again we know power is made up of both force and velocity so the reason i like that is you can actually you know make somebody's program a lot more specific so instead of training them all across you know the strength curve we can say well your weakness is actually force so you're not jumping that high because you're not producing a great force and pushing yourself you know off the ground to propel yourself in the air versus somebody else might need to work on their speed of movement right and so this will kind of allow us to break it down and see what type of programming specifically that an athlete needs. Um, so I found that very interesting, but also noticing just, and this should probably be, you know, a, a common practice anyways, when analyzing athletes, but to do the force velocity profiling, I use the, my jump app to, to do it. Um, in research, it's shown to be just as accurate as using a force plate, but when you slow it down and you're looking for takeoff and landing positions with the jump, you can actually look at the athlete's technique as well. So maybe I did, you know, just a movement screening with them or something, or don't notice it when they're lifting because they're a little overpowered. But when I watch them jump and land in the slow motion form, I can say, Oh, where's that valgus stress coming from? You know, I didn't notice that before. So then I would say, okay, that they're probably an overpowered athlete, right? They can perform at a very high level, but they do have, you know, a mechanical weakness that wasn't noticeable because they are pretty strong, right? Um, So I've been able to kind of notice some of those other things as well from doing this type of profiling. So it's not just giving me that information with force or velocity, it's giving me some, you know, mechanical information also, so. Yeah, an article on our website way back, the vertical performance. Vertical jump performance. Yeah, window. Essentially, uh, we had a lot of coaches just applying the same programs to athletes, but the understanding, um, I guess from coaching experience, there's people that are better at defense, people are better at offense, like initiating, and people are better at reacting. So just using this jump technique to try to teach sport coaches of maybe this kid's in the wrong position. To right. uh, t- kind of empower their their team and make some some arrangements, um, I, I got to go back. Yeah, it's opened up a whole it. new rabbit hole to go down for me, really, because <laughs> oh I started to think about you know research that's been done on power and you know jumping, and um, I start to think, well, did you test their force velocity profile before they went through the study? Because maybe those you know the people that were put in that group all needed their force improved or their velocity improved or whatever it is, you know. So then now I'm questioning, okay, well, do you have to go back and should I retest everybody and, or test force velocity profiles and then run them through, you know, a study that's already been done and see if any of the results change or, 
you know, do you have to specify your population even more now when you're studying power or, you know, mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, another interesting thing with it though, that, um, Jamie Marin is working on right now is, um, hamstring injuries and noticing that the force velocity profile drops a little bit right before somebody does injure their hamstring. So I know he's got over 200 athletes right now, but he's just trying to gather the most amount of data that he can, um, to see if now we can use force velocity profiling to maybe predict uh, you know, a hamstring strain that's about to come on. So then we're just going to decrease maybe their volume of sprints that they would do in practice or whatnot, you know? Um, so that's another cool thing with force velocity. Nice. Powerful stuff. Injury yeah. prevention. Mm-hmm. Yeah. People helping people. Powerful stuff. Yeah. More is not always better. <laughs> and Unless it's chips and salsa. Ooh. And, never... mar- and margaritas. That's all. I'd agree. I agree. Beautiful. You good, Tex? Yeah. Awesome. Rachel, thanks so much for joining us. Super enlightening chat. Listeners are definitely going to change their perspective on coaching and maybe even how they're following our training, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, if anyone wanted to geek out and continue to look into a lot of the research that you've completed or what your upcoming research as it's published or your social media, I mean, where could they go keep tabs on you? I mean, they can uh, find me on Facebook just under uh, Rachel Larson or I have a professional page, Rachel Larson, and it's like PhDC, CSCS, um, or on Instagram, it's rlarson underscore 11. So the old volleyball number. Nice. Um, or even shoot me an email. It's just uh, rachel.larson11 at asu.edu. Awesome. Thanks cool. again. And another yeah. episode in the books, Power Athlete Radio, the premier podcast in strength and conditioning. Ding. 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 All right. Thank you so much, Rachel. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Bye. You. Now it's time for you to empower your performance. You can look into Rachel Larson's work on Facebook. She's got a professional page and a personal page. Visit her on Instagram, or if you've got a specific question, you can shoot her an email. Again, that address is rachel.larson11 at asu.edu. Until next time, uh, bye.